Hello, hello, and welcome to In My Shoes. It's a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues we're facing on a daily basis. And I am your host, Karen Davis Thompson, and I have a great guest with me today. I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit about her. Then I'll tell you, of course, why this was a conversation I thought we should have today. So hello, Elizabeth Eliba. She's my guest. How are you? I'm doing awesome. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate you having me and I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much. Tell the audience a little bit about you, and then I will talk about why I asked you to be my guest today. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Well, um, my name is Elizabeth Liba, and I am currently an instructional designer with a small career college here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I started my career in higher education as an admissions counselor and then transitioned after about maybe seven years or so, transitioned into a faculty role. And then from there, for the past few years, I've been working on and off as a faculty member at various um, colleges and universities, mostly community colleges and career colleges that uh, service students from my, uh, I would say, I, would, I won't say minority backgrounds, but more marginalized backgrounds, and have been more recently working in developing curriculum and online um, classes for those same types of career oriented career program students. And uh, I think more recently since the George Floyd murder have experienced an epiphany that my voice is really powerful and I teach English composition and I teach creative writing and I was trained as a writer at the University of Florida. I went to school for journalism. So started thinking about how to use my voice in an effective and positive manner to raise awareness about social justice issues and about things that affect uh, black folk in this country, whether it be inequity, whether it be police brutality, all the issues that uh, we have to navigate in the workplace. It's just so many, a plethora of things that I think came to mind when the George Floyd incident happened. And there's been more of a a focus on those issues. So that's been my uh, primary focus over the past few months. And it was featured in a New York Times article about me being very um, prolific and boisterous on LinkedIn about those issues and recently wrote an op-ed piece for CNN in regard to some of the social justice and uh, racial profiling that I actually experienced myself. So that's been primarily what's been going on with me over the past like nine months or so. Thank you for that. We've got a lot in common. I am a journalism uh, major got my degree in journalism from Florida a and University. Oh, and it looks like, awesome. yeah. I know. I have so many friends that went to FAM. Like, I literally really? almost everybody that I either went to high school with or that I know, like, in the community went there. So I love that. That's awesome. That Rattler. They, they're, y'all are so, y'all got so much swag. The Rattler. Yes, I, we really I love do. you guys. Y'all are swaggy. <laughs> Well, thank you. And we are, and we are, we mean that thing. We oh, are, I we know. are. Right. Trust me, I know. Y'all get real serious, <laughs> which is awesome. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And it looks, it looks like we started our podcast around the same time. I started in February, March time frame. There you go. Um, as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit about what you're doing on your podcast as well. Um, but first I just wanted to let the audience know why this was a conversation I wanted to have today. Uh, So my husband, actually, who is a graduate of the University of Florida as well, um, and then he got some sense and went to family with his graduate degree, but I digress. Oh, that's too funny. I was going to say go Gators, but never mind. All right, now. No, ma'am. No no Gator detected here. Let's go ahead and get him into the Rattler family. It's all good. I'm not even mad. I love the HBCUs. They serve such an amazing purpose. That anytime I talk to somebody that went to HBCU, I will defer like that gator pride and be like, no, like 
hats off to the HBCUs. They do so much good work in our communities and for students that really I'm always so in awe of people that went to HBCUs because I think as black folks, sometimes we're a little bit apologetic and we're trying to like watch our P's and Q's and they're like, hey, I am here. I am loud. I am like in the building. And I love that. I think that's awesome. Yes, they do ingrain that. In, and I don't know when it happened. I mean, this is so off topic, yeah, but I don't know. Okay, okay. I don't know. I don't know when it happens, yeah. but the sense of pride, I think that um, it's great that we have gotten to a place in the world kind of sort of maybe not where you can, you know, pick yeah. where you want to go a little bit more than obviously HBCUs were started because there were so few opportunities sure. that we were given, sure. you know, systemic racism just kind of kept us down, okay. but they really do teach you to understand at the core that you are, you know, black, you yes. need to understand that. And yeah. you need to know that you're going to have to be, you know, 50 times as good, 50 times. So they really prepare you yeah. to be confident and proud of, of being black. It, it yeah. is, it is awesome. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is under, it's undervalued, mm-hmm. underappreciated because at the PWI, you're almost told, well, you have to assimilate people. You know, you can't be, you know, a certain way. And it almost, it's almost like it's teaching you to be ashamed of who you are, which I think is very problematic. You know, when we are taught that what we are, our authentic self is not acceptable. So almost a self, a self-hatred that you're taught in the mainstream mm-hmm. where in order for me to be acceptable or order for me to get hired or promoted, I have to almost lose my identity and become something that I'm not, which I think is, is actually really mentally exhausting and traumatic for a lot of people. So a lot of these things are being discussed now in a lot more meaningful ways than they were before. So unfortunately, as, as I saw the, the video on, um, I think it was on social media, the little girl, uh, social, uh, George Floyd's little girl, and she said, my daddy changed the world, and it almost made me cry. And in a sense, it's true that we were not being reflective of what was happening around us, I think, until that happened in a more meaningful way. And I'm glad that these conversations are happening. So I'm glad that we're having an opportunity, even though we're going, you know, around, but these things are important because we got to talk about these things uh, and make sure that we address and acknowledge everything that's happening around us, right? That, that's true. And mm-hmm. and I, while we are, you know, we're, we're dancing around it. I mean, mm-hmm. it does speak to why I wanted to have you as a guest. Sure. My husband uh, first kind of tuned me in and he um, read your your story and you talked about uh, the racial profiling that you witnessed. Well, not only witnessed, but experienced. And um, you just kind of compared it to some of the things that are happening today. And so I don't want to tell the story. I just know that hearing it, reading it was very powerful for me. And since what we do here at In My Shoes is let women of color tell their story, that's the point. I wanted you to come on and just really talk about what happened, how it has impacted you, how it's led you to where, where you are and what you're doing today. So I'll let you you tell the story. Yeah, for sure. I think that initially in March when the George Floyd murder occurred, I saw on TV when the video first came out or on social media, and I was super triggered by it. I think a lot of people always wondered, well, you know, you got really boisterous on social media. You started posting so much about police brutality and social justice and so many topics. And I think a lot of people wondered, where did this come from? And a part of it was because I had been racially profiled. And I think when I see issues of people being handcuffed or people being um, like the police saying, hey, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of it also comes from this idea of if the person would have done this, it would have you know worked out in their favor if they would have done that. Or there's a lot of victim blaming. And I really hadn't 
really revealed that I had been racially profiled or that I had been arrested. I just started posting about social justice and talking about inequity and talking about police brutality in general. And it just became a passion that I wanted to talk about those things and make sure that people were aware of just stats and just just laying out as a, as a college professor. I think that's a part of my nature as well. It's like I'm always kind of trying to be rational and logical. Like this is a stat. It's not my stat. It's coming from FBI. It's coming from CDC. It's coming from wherever these stats are coming from. I want people to be aware. They can't be willfully ignorant about the inequity that's happening in our country. But it wasn't until the, I saw on social media like the, the past month or so ago with the Kyle Rittenhouse situation where he, in, I guess, July or August or so, went to uh, Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin, and was accused of, which was um, he was charged with, uh, killing two men. Uh, he purchased a, an AR-15 illegally, acquired an AR-15 because he's 17, so he's not old enough to purchase a gun, purchased it with some CARES Act money from a 19-year-old friend that purchased the AR-15 for for him, and he went to uh, the Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, uh, they were having their marches and, and talking about just the, the injustice that had happened with Jacob Blake, who was shot seven times in the back or when he was, the, the police were trying to arrest him. And when I saw that $2 million had been raised for his bail money so that he could uh, be able to be released from um, custody, I was immediately triggered by that. The idea that people kind of rallied around and, 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 and felt so compelled to create a GoFundMe and it was like, a, oh gosh, Ricky Schroeder and all these different people that were like, hey, you know, we need to, this young man, he's, he needs a second chance. And I think it was actually uh, Bernice King, the daughter of um, Martin Luther King that posted on Twitter and she said, wow, you know, we had Khalif Browder who was in Rikers Island for four years, a year of, a year of that was in uh, solitary confinement for being accused of stealing the book bag. And he eventually, you know, committed suicide. And it was just so much that goes, uh, goes to that idea of when our young people are accused of a crime, there's almost a sense of that person is guilty before they're even, before they even get an opportunity. But this 17 year old has been almost lauded and held up as Hey, you know, just give the kid a second chance. He made a mistake or he was asking in self-defense and almost shaming the the victims in this situation of the, the you know, giving every kind of reason in the world for why they deserved to be shot. One of them shot point blank pretty much in the face with an AR-15. And I was really triggered by that. I felt as though I had to talk about my situation as being racially profiled because I didn't get an opportunity to get a second chance or I didn't get an opportunity to kind of, you know, say, Hey, you know, this isn't right or anything. It was almost like the same situation, uh, with Khalif Browder or a lot of people in the community that are racially profiled or George Floyd or anybody. It's almost like, well, we're going to just take you to jail and you, you're going to have to figure it out. And there, there isn't any kind of innocent until proven guilty. And I think that's what made me talk about being racially profiled. I went into 
um, and Eckert drugs when I was a 19 year old sophomore at the University of Florida and in my book bag. And I think that was where the book bag connection came in and why I got really sad when I thought about this idea. I was like, wow, I had a book bag. Khalif Browder had a book bag. He was supposedly stole, was accused of stealing. And I had a book bag and it was later found out that that wasn't, you know, he didn't steal it, but I had a book bag and inside my book bag was a pack of batteries. And that morning that I went into in, in, uh, 1993. It was like my sophomore year at University of Florida. I went into an Ecker drug with some film to drop off some film to get developed. So, you know, this was back in the stone ages because it wasn't on my phone. It was just, you know, <laughs> in my camera. And uh, the film was in my book bag and I dropped it off at the at the uh, photo counter and left the, tried to leave the store and the batteries that were in my book bag. I had bought the batteries like two days before beeped and they called me back and they said, Hey, I was like, do you have anything? Did you purchase anything? I'm like, no, I didn't purchase anything. I just came in here, dropped something off that some film off. And they were like, well, can you show us inside your book bag or prove that you didn't steal anything? And, uh, when I opened up the book bag, there were the batteries and they were like, well, here's some batteries. What happened? I'm like, Oh yeah, I bought those a couple of days ago. I have a receipt here. And I was rifling through my book bag. And before I knew it, it was like, come in the back. You're calling the cops because you don't have your receipt and where's your receipt. And um, I was taken to jail, like literally within probably the hour. Once the police got there, they were like, where's your seat? And it ended up once um, once I was taken into custody, arrested for stealing like $3, $2.79 pack of batteries after several hours in custody. My mom posted bail because I was in Gainesville. She was had to post bail in Fort Lauderdale and drive up to Gainesville, like a four-hour drive or so to get pick me up from uh, the jail. And when she picked me up, I was rifling again through the book bag. Like, I know the receipt is here. And it was inside, actually inside a folder. That's why I didn't see it, because I had tucked it away inside a folder. And I found it uh, right after she picked me up from the jail. And I was, like, literally hysterically crying, because I was like, that sucks that I went through that. And um, uh, I posted about that. I posted about it on LinkedIn, actually very hesitant to post about it. And um, didn't want to, but I felt as though it's very necessary for people to see that racial profiling is not, oh, you have to be look like George Floyd. I think people, there's 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 a lot of stereotypes that are happening in the black community to uh, that whole idea of in order for somebody to, it's almost like they are saying that someone deserves this kind of treatment, right? So in order for you to think that someone's going to get racially profiled, maybe they're like a, a six foot two, 250 pound dark skinned black man. And that's, if you, if you would just comply, then, you know, nothing's going to happen to you. And I'm like, Hey, I was like a buck 10, five feet, barely tall. And I still wasn't given the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't matter what you look like or how you appear. Or I told them I was a college student. I live right across the street. If you just let me go back to my dorm and, you know, you can, there was literally no kind of consideration. And even my lawyer said, I've never seen anything like this before. He was shocked. Uh, a lawyer in the local uh, town there that my mom got after everything happened, he was, literally was like, I've never seen anything like this before. This is like mind blowing that they did that because even their own policy says that they would have had to witness you steal it and you would have had to actually leave the store. There were so many different things that uh, they, in their own manuals, he pointed to once I took it to civil court because I presented the receipt, obviously, after I had already been in custody and the charges were dropped, but decided to file a lawsuit against them for um, false arrest and malicious prosecution 
because of the fact that they just did not, they did not give the benefit of the doubt. And that normally would have been their process. Their process would have been like, okay, let's just, for, especially for something like a, a $3 item that would not have been the norm. And, and they couldn't really explain why they did what they did. And the only thing that I could think of was obviously they felt as though they could get away with it and racially profiled and, and, and didn't feel as though they would be responsible for their actions. And when uh, I posted about it on LinkedIn, CNN reached out to me and asked me to write an op-ed piece uh, for them in relationship to that that distinction that I made, that that correlation that I made, that you have a 17-year-old white kid accused of murder in, in a lot of these uh, social media posts and throughout uh, the, the, the some of these other communities, they're saying that he was almost like a hero. You know, he was there to help and he was there to maintain order against people that were looting. And I even had, uh, after the, the, the post, uh, the CNN posted this on their website and had, had my editor said it had about 2 million views on their site and had hundreds of emails from all over the place. And, um, people obviously looked me up on social media and, and were able to contact me on my social media and, and emailed me. And a lot of the posts were very negative or emails were negative and, and, that was unfortunate, but I did have even the family of one of the victims reached out and said, thank you for showing the other side. People are, vic- are, are villainizing our son and our, our child and saying that he was at fault for his own murder. And we appreciate that you presented another side to this. So I think sometimes people forget that there are real people behind these things that are happening and that people are being told that the system is equitable but we know that's not true. So that was why I felt, even though it was something that I told my editor at CNN until that post on LinkedIn and obviously until the op-ed piece that I wrote for them, only a handful of people even knew that I had been arrested at 19 because it was embarrassing. You know, it was something that I kept very close to home. I mean, my husband knows obviously and my my mom and, and close family members, but not even friends or a lot of people that reached out and said, I had no idea because it wasn't something I talked about, even though I was vindicated, the, the charges were dropped by the state. I won a lawsuit against Eckhart Drugs. That was the company that called the police because they were the ones that initiated the whole process. I still felt a great deal of shame because I felt like, wow, you know, oh, being arrested, people are going to look at me differently or feel like, oh, what did you do wrong? It's like I always had to be in a, a position of explaining myself. And, and I felt as though even though that was the case, I had an obligation to talk about it because it, it shouldn't be something that I should be ashamed of. And also people should see that maybe they have in their head a stereotype of, oh, this is the kind of person that gets racially profiled. They have to be a certain like, – oh, six feet tall, or they have to be threatening, or the there has to be something to validate why this person's calling the police. And in my case, there was nothing to validate that. It just, they just wanted to, you know, just do what they did. And and the point of what my attorney told me as far as the lawsuit was, you're not going to get rich off of this. You're not going to get a million dollars. But what we're going to do is make a point and let them know that this is something that's unacceptable and they can't do that again. And the jury agreed. So that was, uh, that was where the, uh, the source of the, the rationale for writing the op-ed piece came. And, and I just wanted to keep using my voice in a positive way to show that there are so many inequities and in, in social injustice that happens in this country and make us aware as a, as a country that we need to address those. There, there is so much 
to unpack in what you just said. I, I mean, just hearing it, I mean, I, I knew the, the gist of the story, but hearing it is, is just really mind blowing and can just, it angers me just to hear the story. I guess, did they ever say to you why, you know, you touched on it a little bit that they didn't seem to have a reason, but why they would go like, like really for $2 and 79 cents. And I was thinking the same thing. Like, shouldn't they have had to see you put it in the book bag? Like I've been in stores where something that I may have purchased somewhere else or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's a little small something you put in your, in your bag, it may go off. Like, I, I mean, really batteries in the bottom. Did they ever say, Hey, this is why we felt we needed to like go so far as to have this person arrested for a $3 pack of batteries. They didn't. And as a matter of fact, even up until they, the, the lawsuit, the civil suit was settled in, uh, I was arrested in 1993. The civil suit was settled in 1996. So over that three year period, many times my lawyer was just like, just settle, just admit, okay, wrongdoing, throw her a few thousand dollars and we'll just go away. They just refused. They they didn't really say. They said that they felt that they were justified because the item, you know, the lawyer, the 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 store manager followed proper protocol and the item went off. So they were justified, and they said they called the police, and the police are the ones that make the decision about whether to arrest somebody or not. And my lawyer was like, "But well, that's passing the buck because if you hadn't called the police, the police wouldn't have to have arrested her. You shouldn't have called them in the first place." But no, they never really gave an adequate reason other than to say that the manager had adequate reason to believe because the item they had checked the, the, uh, the, 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 the detector in the beginning of the day. And they felt that if it beat, then it was accurate. And even though no one witnessed me doing it, nobody, I presented the receipt after the fact, they were like, well, it's kind of like, those are the breaks, you know, that's not our fault that, you know, that happened, but we didn't, we didn't know they, we had no way of knowing. They kind of like were very almost like, unapologetic and also kind of like, well, it's not our fault kind of thing. It was like, they, they really didn't have a reason. And my lawyer, his, 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 I think his frustration was that for something such a small item, only a $2 item, it didn't make a lot of sense. It just seemed like they were doing some, it was almost really malicious. And that's why they, they were sued for malicious, malicious prosecution because, why would you do that? You know, there even someone reached out to me that they were like, I work for Eckers and I read the story and they were like, that was so like against all of the protocols that were taught. So they really couldn't explain it. Even my lawyer was like, your own manual says you have to witness somebody. They have to actually leave the store, which I didn't leave the store. There were many things that they didn't follow in terms of their own protocols. But at the end of the day, Eckers stood by the manager and said, well, you know, even still, we had reason to believe that the police should be called. So yeah, I think that was a part of the frustration as well. They refused to even apologize. They refused to admit, even up until right before the lawsuit, Eckers' lawyer was like, we feel as though we are in the right and and we did what we were supposed to do in this situation, which was super frustrating for me. And I, you know, to me, it it speaks to, and you can tell me if you agree, you know, you hear people talk about using the police as a weapon, right? So you call the police. It's kind of like, you know, the young men who were taken to jail because they wouldn't leave the Starbucks because they were accused mm-hmm. of, you know, they, they went to the bathroom and didn't order anything. Right. And they're like, well, we're here waiting for somebody. So you call the police and if they say, hey, they're asking you to leave. And if they refuse to leave, then now you're trespassing. And so- okay, well, we have to arrest you. So I feel like, 
you know, it is passing the buck in a form of weaponizing the police to do your bidding, so to speak. Um, do you, did you kind of feel that way also? And do you think that that is something that, you know, white America does that that's their that's their weapon against uh, people of color, against black folk? What would you know, I'm going to trespass you, even though what I'm saying you did makes absolutely no sense. And then, of course, most people say I'm not leaving. I didn't do anything wrong. And now the police are calling. So now you're being arrested. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you a thousand percent because the police are you're using the police and then once the police get there it's going to escalate the situation is going to escalate and then once that escalation has happened you can kind of like put your hands up in the air and just say well I it was not my fault like the police were the ones that made the decision I just called them because I felt in fear of this or I felt you did that I wasn't sure so I wanted the police to get involved once the police get there I mean what are they going to do like nine times out of ten they're not going to just come there and and, uh, (laughs) they're going to arrest somebody something's going to happen especially if you know, it, the situation escalates. And I think that's definitely true. We saw that with the Central Park Amy situation where politely, hey, can you put your dog on a leash? Like, uh, we're bird watching here. Your dog's running around. And, it, and oh, I feel unsafe now. So police are called and now it it escalates to another level. So I, I definitely feel as though there is a use of the police as a weaponized force for someone doesn't feel comfortable or someone doesn't like something that's happening or someone doesn't like what you're doing or someone doesn't like how you look or whatever the situation is. And then now that person has a blotch on their record because they're taken to jail for something so minor that could have just been resolved with a simple, like just talking about the situation or resolving it in, in, a, in a more rational way. So yeah, stuff like that, like this, the Starbucks situation, I get really angry when I see things like that because it reminds me of the situation that happened to me. My lawyer said the same thing. You're 19, you're a college student. Now, you know, why should you have to deal with this? Why should you have been arrested? Why should you go through this? And you're literally not doing anything wrong. And my thought process, even though I had the receipt, I did not steal the batteries. My thought process was even my, even my lawyer said, even if you did steal them, come on, it's just a $3 item. You think they would have just took it. Like he said this, he was like, you think they would have just took it and threw it away and just told you leave. But there is, I think when it comes to black Americans, brown people, there is almost like the first response is always to get police involved. The first response is, oh, I was afraid. The first response was I, I felt like this was the right, right way to handle it rather than being rational. And, and I think that's where the Kyle Rittenhouse situation came in for me when I saw so many people on social media saying, wow, you know, he's just a kid. He deserved a second chance. I mean, this person took two lives and there's no way. And this is what I told my editor at CNN. There's no way a black 17-year-old boy would have done the same thing and anyone would have said, he's just a kid. He deserves a second chance. There's absolutely no way. I don't believe it. There's no way anyone can tell me that because at 17, when that situation happened to me, like the faces of those people, you would have thought I killed someone. They were so angry and so anxious to call the police. And then one thing I mentioned in the CNN story was they wanted me to sign a, um, they would have let me leave because I could not find a receipt. I was looking for the receipt, looking for the receipt. And I'm just like, well, if you guys give me a moment, let me just, and they were like, well, we're calling the cops because you, you don't have it. That means clearly you must have stole this item. And they were like, the only other thing that you can do is sign um, a submission of guilt saying that you stole the batteries and a no trespass, which means you can never come back in here again. And 
I told my, um, afterwards when my mom picked me up, she was like, why didn't you just sign it? And I was like, no, I'm not going to sign it because I didn't take the battery. So I'm not going to sign something to say that I did. You know, they wouldn't have called the police. They would have just let me go. But then my thought process was, and at 19, I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't have anyone to advise me. And at 19, my thought process also was, if I sign this, suppose then they call the police and say, I admitted to stealing the batteries. You know, I, I was so scared at that point. There was, I, I don't think I've ever been that afraid in my life. So I think sometimes also there's, I, people don't realize the, the amount of restraint it takes when you're in that kind of situation. I was talking to my mom about it and why I was so triggered by the George Floyd situation where people are like, you should just comply. And thinking about him saying, I don't want to get inside the cop car. I'm totally claustrophobic. I can't. And, and, and people don't realize that you get in the back of a cop car. There's not even any door handles in there. You know, there's things that people don't understand if they've never been arrested. Right. They don't understand the fear that goes through your body when handcuffs are being put on you. You know, I, I, I remember telling my mom this after George Floyd uh, murder. And I said, there's no way anyone can understand the amount of restraint it takes not to run from the police unless you've been arrested. You know, because when you know you didn't do anything wrong and now you have to go to jail and you know that you're going to be in holding cell, be in a, in a cell with somebody that probably did do something wrong, even if they did or they didn't, you're still in a confined situation and you know that you shouldn't be there. And I, I think there's almost a, a very huge lack of empathy when someone calls the police, when that should be like your, I mean, you should literally be in fear or it should be like your last resort. And for a lot of white folk, like you alluded to earlier, that's like the first thing. The minute that someone's doing something that they don't like, oh, you're barbecuing. Oh, you're in Starbucks. Oh, you're telling me to put my dog on a leash. I'm calling the police. And police are being used almost like their personal concierge to come get you in check if you're doing something that people don't like and people don't realize people can lose their life or people can lose their livelihood, you know, because now that person has a arrest record or that person has to go to jail. That person has to come up with bond. A lot of people ask me, well, what if your mom wouldn't have been able to bond you out? I'm like, I don't know what would have happened. I would have just sat in jail, I guess, because there, there were situations I'm sure for people that get arrested. And this is some of the injustice that happens where people get arrested for something petty. And then suppose they don't have a family member that has $500, or $700. It seems like, oh, that's just a little bit of money. But $500 today might be hard for somebody to come up with for somebody's bond. So now that person is sitting in jail over something that could have been resolved very simply by them just saying, okay, you know, oh, you're sitting waiting for somebody. Don't worry about it. You know what? But they're not following the, the store's policy or they're not following, like in my situation, what their procedure should be. So now you have a record. Now you're sitting in jail. Now you have to post bond and do all these things that were totally unnecessary. And I think it's interesting what you said. It isn't even so much that they're calling the police because people are breaking the law. They're calling the police because we're doing something they don't like. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I guess the fact that in white America, that seems to be acceptable. Like you said, oh, you guys are barbecuing? I, I'm going to call the police, mm -hmm. you know, or the little girl is selling water mm -hmm. to people trying to raise money to go to Disney world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's not supposed to be doing that without a, you know, without a permit. She's eight. Yeah. You know? right. So, Oh, I'm going to call the police. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that's a very powerful statement. It isn't, Hey, they're, you know, they're busting car windows or they're <laughs> no, we're, yeah. we're just, you know, we're barbecuing. We're like driving. And because the car is nicer than you think we should, 
have, it must be stolen. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. just whatever they don't like, yeah. they use the police. Is It's kind of how I feel. And it sounds like, you know, that's what happened to you. Um, it was just, you know, and, and I understand how you feel like my 40 some year old self wouldn't have signed something saying I stole some batteries when I know I didn't. And I know my 19 year old self would not have done it. Mm-hmm. And it's because I, I would have felt like you. I'm admitting to doing something that I didn't do. And then what happens if I, when I find the receipt mm-hmm. and now I've signed this document saying I stole the batteries, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like wh- where would that have taken you? So I totally get why you would have felt uncomfortable signing something like that. Um, can you tell me why you think, obviously, racism is real and it's been going on for decades. Why do you think that the George Floyd murder and what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse was such a trigger for you? Wow. I think the George Floyd murder triggered a lot of Black folk across America because of just how blatant and just how just it was just so in our face I think that a lot of times we've we've seen and heard of these situations there's a list I mean the list is almost too long of all of these situations and and murders and 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 things that have happened but we haven't seen it on video which is awful that we have to see some proof to to actually process something but I think what triggered me so hard, and, and it triggered me really hard because I literally went into, I have to admit, almost like a deep depression after the George Floyd situation. I was like in bed. I was wrapped up in a cover. I could not function. And I was very, very just distraught because of just how painful and and how long and how the, just the cries and, uh, and just the, the lack of any kind of empathy or remorse in that situation. I think when you've seen other situations that happen, it's like, okay, that person got shot and it was like immediate or this happened. And, you know, we, we didn't necessarily see a video of it. So we weren't, we weren't able to process that visual image. And I think this speaks a lot to the trauma of black people, the mental trauma that we undergo, because we've almost become, I think, numb and desensitized to a lot of these murders that happen, whether it's Breonna Taylor, whether it's Trayvon Martin, we've, we've seen the hashtags, we've seen the names, but we haven't necessarily seen it actually in our face. Like we've heard about it or we've read about it. We've seen the court cases about it. People are talking about it on social media, but I think the George Floyd incident, the murder triggered people so badly because you saw every single minute, every single second, every painful minute of the last breaths that somebody took on this earth and somebody's child and someone is yelling for their own mother and we all have a mother or if we are a mother we felt that like deep in our core like someone didn't deserve that no matter what they had done or someone thought they had done and then the fact that I think what triggered me so hard was that it was such oh t- passing a fake $20 bill I think that triggered me because that, it reminded me of my own situation okay a $3 pack of batteries. Like really somebody passed a fake $20 bill. And now, you know, a lot of people came out on social media and well, he should have been following the law. You don't know if that man even knew that was a fake $20 bill. And even if it was, and he was trying to pass it, there's no death penalty for passing a fake $20 bill, you know, but then you have someone like a Kyle Rittenhouse that it's not in dispute that he killed those people. No one's saying he didn't kill them. He's saying he killed them in self-defense. So he's not saying that he didn't do it. He's saying that he had justifiable reason for doing so. 
So you have that individual that's almost being pat on the back, like, hey, you're a hero. You protected yourself. But then you have someone that supposedly passed a $20 bill. Well, you should be following the law. If you follow the law, then you wouldn't have been killed by the police. You should have that you should have complied with the police officer. And then that wouldn't have happened to you. So I think that's what triggers me the most. There's such a disregard. There's such a lack of empathy. You have similar situations where one person is being treated fairly or one person is, is oh, this person needs a second chance. So, oh, this person, you know, was in danger. This per- th- There's always another excuse or always another reason why this person should be treated fairly or this person should get the benefit of the doubt. But in situations that happen with black folk, it's almost like, you're never given the benefit of the doubt. You're never given any kind of empathy. I did get a lot of, for the for my op-ed piece, the CNN piece, I got hundreds of emails. And uh, I did get a lot of people that supported and, and did say, wow, thank you for speaking up. Thank you for telling your story. We really appreciate you being brave enough to talk about this. But then I got a lot of people, oh, stop whining. So what? This this kid, he's, he's on trial for his life. So what? Big deal. You went to jail for a few hours. Like, get over it. I was like, wow, somebody, I talked to my husband about it. He said, somebody took time out of their day to, to email you on your job, looked up your email because my email wasn't in the op-ed. So they had to Google my name, find out where I worked. <laughs> like they went through all that investigative work to email me on my job to tell me, get over it. Or if you don't like it here, go back to Africa. As I told you some of the emails that I got, people almost are in disbelief at some of the vitriol that came across my email, my work email, because that's really the only way they could get in contact with me or my social media. So they looked me up and found me on social media. And people were so pressed to let me know that what I said made absolutely no sense and that I shouldn't be coming down on a 17-year-old because he's just a kid. And my situation was like, hey, so what? Cry me a river. Like, don't speak out against this kid. This kid is a hero. And I don't think I would have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. With my podcast, we have a web page, and a lot of the uh, comments came in through the, the contact us. Like there's like your little, I'm sure you know, that you have the little place where people could contact you or leave you a message for your podcast or if they want to be a guest or whatever. And people went through actually probably a hundred of those, uh, I got hundreds, but probably a hundred of them went through the, the podcast website where people were just like leaving messages on there, like shut up, who cares? Like, oh, well, you got arrested, you know, get over it. And my podcast hosts, one is he's white, he's Italian. The other one is Puerto Rican. And they were, I think, like literally in shock. Cause he like, people actually did that like they actually went out of their way to leave you a hateful message here like what who does that but it's that's what's happening out here in this world and I think that's why I am really committed to the idea of talking about these things because it shouldn't be undercovers we have to pull it out and expose it so that we can address what's happening here in this country it's not a post-racial America because Obama was president and that we get to eat at the lunch counter or we get to move around, there's still so much work that needs to be done. And there's still a lot of reckoning that needs to happen. And uh, if we don't, if we're not having these honest conversations and talking about these things, then we're not going to get that reckoning that we need. 
That's absolutely true. I completely agree. I, I do feel like a lot of people feel like, well, there's no racism because, you know, we had a black president yeah. or, you know, um, I'll never forget years ago when um, Bush was running for office. Uh, I can't remember. It was when John Kerry was the Democratic person nominee. And I came in with my I voted sticker on and a white older gentleman said to me, oh, would you vote for Bush? And I said, come on, how long have you known me? No, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> so he's like, well, what do you mean? He He's for abortion because I'm a Christian. And I guess because he, uh, John Kerry, believed in abortion. I said, well, I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't plan on ever having an abortion, but I'm black and female every day of the week. Yes. And those are issues that I vote on. But but he has come to Lisa Rice. I mean, everybody knows how to go and get somebody to make it look good. That doesn't mean that we're really addressing what's happening. So you go get a black woman and put them on your cabinet. And that means that you're not. And I'm not saying George Bush was racist. My point was, I felt like Carrie was the candidate who would be more in tune as much as a white man can be right. with what, you know, women and people of color were going through. Abortion. Yeah, I'm not having one of those. Yeah. That's a religious issue for me. Yeah. That's, not, right. that's not a political one. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. But it was amazing that he felt like, but he has Condoleezza Rice. <laughs> you know, so I think, <laughs> okay. So I think a lot of people feel like, oh, because now, you know, you can date somebody out of your outside of your race, or we had a, a, a black man as president that somehow racism has been conquered and you know we should all just you know shut up and stop whining about stuff you know they they, they want to put it under the cover which is why you know it was so brave of you to speak out and I'm wondering you alluded to it a little bit but what types of um comments did you get from people were you surprised at some of the people maybe that you called a friend or that you thought were in your circle who maybe were uncomfortable with your decision to be so vocal about what is happening. I think sometimes I know I've had that. Um, my sister was on one of my podcasts and she mentioned it. It's like, oh, I didn't know you felt like they do. And it's like, they, you mean a black person? Yeah, that's because that's what I am. So did you have people that you really looked at differently once you started speaking out who maybe were uncomfortable with your decision to do that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think initially... When I started speaking out on LinkedIn, I was more, it was like around January, February time. So I was posting a lot of like more, not, it was before George Floyd. So this was more like black on magic and black history facts. Cause you know, I teach literature and I'm always into let's like amplify all of our great authors that we've had in the black diaspora and things like that. And people were kind of, a couple of people did send me messages at that time saying, Hey, you know, just stick with higher ed topics. You know, you don't want potential employers on LinkedIn to think that you're a little bit too blackity black, black, and always posting stuff about, you know, black history and stuff that might be a little bit too radical for LinkedIn. And my thought process was, well, I'm black and I'm posting about black literature and posting about black or magical things that resonate with me. So I don't think there's any potential employer should have a problem with that. And I'm not job hunting anyway. So I really didn't care. And even if I was, I feel like my blackness and, and my love of black literature, my love of black culture can't be separated from who I am as a person. So I did get a couple people in higher ed circles telling me like, I oh, slow down on some of that, like black history, you know, little known black history facts. You might not want to put that out there so much. You kind of like got to appease your audience. And I always feel like, you know, to a certain extent, like if that's my audience doesn't 
care about that stuff or if they feel like I should censor myself, then I don't want that audience. That's really where I stand with it. I haven't gotten as much pushback since I've been more vocal. I think the more radical I get, the more support I've gotten from uh, people, not only on LinkedIn, but also people in my personal circle just saying, we're proud of you. Thank God you spoke up. Thank God you told your story. I had a high school uh, friend that reached out and he said, you know, I had my students because he teaches uh, he teaches high school here locally in Fort Lauderdale. And we went to high school together. He said, I had my students read your CNN article and had them write a response, you know, like a critical thinking response, a reading response to your article. And I have, I feel like the more that I've been more authentic in my voice and the more that I have spoken up, I have gotten more people in my circle that have actually been like proud of the fact that I am serving as a voice. I think as far as the trolling on like social media and people that are looking to discount what I'm saying or looking to poke holes in that I've gotten a lot more of. And and I, I have been surprised by that. I've been more surprised than rather than people in my circle who've been largely supportive, I've been actually more surprised by the amount of trolling, the amount of people that I don't know at all that will go out of their way to send me a message or hunt me down or find where they can email me on my job or hunt me down on LinkedIn or DM me or and be like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're you're actually a racist because you keep bringing this stuff up. And I'm like, no, bringing up racism actually doesn't make you a racist. It makes you an anti-racist or it makes you someone that's trying to shine a spotlight on something that's an injustice in this country. So I think that did surprise me, especially on professional platforms. Like when you see LinkedIn or you see people that are emailing, you know, people are emailing me and I'm like, wow, this person is a, a hiring, you know, or a general manager at such and such company. And they're taking their time to email me and tell me that, I'm, you know, a rabble rouser or, or I'm someone that's actually destructive. It's like it's kind of scary. I think to a certain extent, sometimes it makes me afraid when I think about the fact that a lot of people that are out here are having these, and maybe it's a good thing. Sometimes they, they say it's better for people to be um, transparent and clear with where they stand. But I think it just shows as a country, we have a long way to go because people are very complacent and used to things being a certain way. And I think things can never go back to the way they were before. It's almost like COVID. And there's so many things that have happened in 2020 that the country will always now be affected moving forward by these events. And I think the George Floyd murder is one of them that people are not going to just sit back and, and accept certain treatment or behavior or structural issues in the country. People will continue to speak out and that we will demand meaningful change, whether it comes to government, whether it comes to the workplace, whether it comes to education. There's so many different areas that have to be addressed in terms of equity. And, and uh, that's something that we have to reckon with and we, we have to move forward and make sure that that doesn't get pushed to the back burner because we can't function as a country moving forward without addressing these inequities. And how did it feel? How do you think it it felt or did it release something for you that maybe you had held on to that maybe you didn't even realize how deeply it held on to it once you decided to take that step and say, hey, I'm going to write about this, even though part of me is still embarrassed, even though logically, you know, you don't have a reason to be just, you know, putting it out in the universe that you were arrested. Nobody wants to do that, right? So how did you feel once you released that and then you got the the call from CNN what did that do for you emotionally 
Oh, that's such a good question. It has been, I almost want to cry. <laughs> it's been life-changing because this happened when I was 19 and for two decades almost, you know, I've held on to this shame and guilt for something that I was not at fault for. And that was like almost like a, you know, it's almost like when you're a victim in a situation and you blame yourself, you literally hold on to that shame. And it was a process, you know, it was definitely a process of release. And when they reached out and wanted me to write the article, I don't think I really realized how much of a, of a release it would be. So what you're asking me is actually very, very um, salient and, 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 and very intuitive for you to even think of asking me that because I don't think I really processed it until it had happened. Once it happened, it was like a literal 10 pound weight was lifted off of me because I was like, okay, it's out there now. So I don't hesitate to talk about it anymore because everybody already knows. Whereas before I would always hesitate. I would always feel ashamed and embarrassed. And I think the fact that it happened is so, it so relates to everything that's going on in America right now that so many people, when you have a Breonna Taylor's name and you have a George Floyd's name, when you have a Trayvon Myers name, all these individuals, Ahmaud Arbery, that have come into contact with people who either think that they're law enforcement or are law enforcement and are literally abusing their power or people are calling people and that person is abusing their power, using weaponizing the police. And it's such a common practice that I felt like it was a relief to actually be able to speak about it and to, to, to get that out there. It, it actually was a process that after it happened, I almost, I almost I went into another kind of like depression. Like, oh my God, now everybody knows that people are like attacking me. So I had to kind of process all the trolling and everything that happened as a result of it. But once that was over, I actually felt stronger. You know, I feel like it gave me a certain sense of relief and confidence in that, well, now it's there, out there, and there's nothing to hide. And actually that story can help people. And the amount of people that did reach out, hundreds of people that reached out and said, thank you so much for being brave enough to talk about it, it actually did give me some hope and it gave me some inspiration of, okay, you know what? My voice can make a difference. My voice can make change. My voice can help people to see, you know, exactly what is happening out here. Because sometimes I think people are willfully ignorant. They really feel as though police never do anything wrong and, oh, society is fair and racial profiling doesn't happen. And it's almost like you have to put something directly in somebody's face and be like, look, this happened. I'm telling you with my own eyes. Sometimes I think it's sad, but people just don't believe these stories until someone is like, it happened to me. I saw with my own eyes. When I'm talking about stuff when it comes to police brutality and injustice, I'm not speaking off of Hill Street Blues or Law and Order Special Victims Unit, something I saw on TV. I'm talking about something I experienced myself and that happens not only to me, it happens every day all around America, all across the country. This these things are happening. And it doesn't mean all police are bad. It doesn't mean that, oh, you know, every person because I think that happens a lot too. I get a lot of people that send me messages that get really triggered. Oh, are you saying all police are bad? Oh, are you saying that all white people are bad? Nobody said that. But systemically there are a lot of issues with a lot of our systems in this country. Policing is one of them, education. Uh, the corporate environment, workplaces, healthcare. There's so many areas where there's disparities. And if we don't talk about them, then how are we going to fix these issues? You know, 
I totally agree. And, and, you know, it's interesting when the shoe was on the other foot, you know, it's okay for you, for other people to group all black folks together and, and, and say that we're all a certain way. But when you call out, Hey, this is my experience. And I'm just letting you know that some corruption exists. You're saying all cops are bad. No, I'm I'm not saying that any more than all black folks are bad just because what you saw on TV or whatever arrest you saw, you know, doesn't mean all black people are bad. It doesn't mean all cops are bad, but these things are happening. And if we want to all live in a more just society, which is what, you know, people who love to tout the constitution, um, that's what we really should be um, hoping to do. So um, yeah, I can, I can see how difficult it must've been to get past that one trauma. Okay. I finally released this. And now the people who don't have enough time, I guess too much time, I should say on their hands to, spend that much time looking you up to tell you that they don't agree with you. <laughs> like you don't, you need a hobby, like some volunteer hours somewhere. Cause that's, that's a lot of work. I couldn't believe that. I could not believe I was so shocked that people went out of their way to like research me and look me up oh and try God. to figure out like how to get in contact with you. I was like, wow, that was, that was some detect- detective work right that's there. Serious. Yeah. That was like, you know, what they could have done with that time. They could have really, they could have really done something real important with that time. <laughs> surprising very surprising it's it's a lot of things that have happened over the past few months that have surprised me but if anything it just makes me more focused on the idea that if I can use my voice I think that's the least I can do to try to make change to try to bring awareness to try to be a voice for people that don't feel like they have a voice and because sometimes people are like well so what's the big deal you're on social media you're talking about this stuff like what's the difference the difference is that that's my power like I don't not I don't work in government I'm not it, you know, in D.C., you know, if I worked in D.C., then I would try to pass a law or which I would work with other members of Congress. It's like everyone has to work in their sphere of influence. And, and I tell people that all the time when they talk about what can I do? What can I do? What where do you work? What do you do? Who do you come into contact with? What can you do if you're a stay at home mom? Teach your children about anti-racism. There's everyone can do something to contribute toward a movement for a better country, a movement for a more just and equitable country. So I feel as though there was just a pull inside me to, okay, what am I good at? What can I do that would be able to create some kind of, um, I guess, acknowledgement of what's happening in our communities? And and I felt like that was the way to do it. So I I had to. Um, And I'm really glad you did because, um, like I said, I think that more people need to hear this stuff and especially coming from a woman, because I do think that especially early on, you know, people, you know, we talked a lot about our black men and black boys, you know, and I know I worry about that for my husband and son, but you know, this is happening to our black women as well. You know, they don't, they're not discriminating. They're getting black women uh, as well. So hearing from a woman who experienced that, I think is very powerful um, for all of us to hear. Um, and so if we could just switch gears for a little bit, this has been um, heavy. And I, and I know that for a lot of people, a lot of people, when I, cause you know, when I get fed, I was like, really, it'll really upset you. Yes. Um, yes. But let's talk a little bit about your podcast and how long you've been doing. I know I, we talked about it a little bit. I think you started maybe in March of this year, but a little bit about um, the topic and, and the types of things you all discuss on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. It's called the Ed Up Experience. It's an education podcast. The My two my co-host and the producer, they actually started it in like January of this year and they have been doing it for a couple months. And then I was active on LinkedIn, just posting about higher ed because that's my field and, and just kind of posting my black girl magic stuff around 
Black History Month. And they kind of reached out. They were like, wow, you're really you're really posting all the time on LinkedIn. And we love, you know, some of the stuff that you're posting. Um, would you consider coming on as like a like a if like a sub if, if someone can't make it for um, one of our episodes, maybe you can just like pitch hit for us and, and kind of come in. And I was like, yeah, sure. That sounds like cool. That sounds like fun. And so initially we it started as me being a sub and then after like the first one or two episodes they were like you know what we need you to come and be a permanent part of the podcast so that's really it's been since that time we interview higher ed leaders so it's usually like college presidents uh just all over the country at different community colleges large schools we've had like presidents of like I don't even know, Western Governors University. Uh, we've had people from Southern New Hampshire University, a lot of state colleges, a lot of community colleges, just come on and talk about the state of higher education, what's going on, issues in terms of COVID, issues in terms of diversity and those kinds of concerns. Anything that's really of uh, workforce readiness and, and how to address return on investment in higher education, anything that's really a, a hot button issue in higher education is really what we try to talk about and, and try to make sure that we get some get some feedback from some of the leaders in uh, some of these schools to try to give us some uh, direction about where the field is going and what we need to do to make it better. Well, I will definitely put information in the show notes so that people can check it out um, uh, and take a listen to what you guys are doing on, on the podcast. Is it something that you, did you find that you enjoyed it? Was it something you had to get used to? I did, doing a podcast? Yeah, I had to get used to it because, I mean, I had never done anything like that before. I didn't even know what podcasting was until I started doing it. I was just like, what's a podcast? So, yeah, it, it was very uncomfortable initially, even though I work in higher ed. I've been like a you know college professor for like a decade, so I'm used to kind of like speaking in front of people. So that wasn't – I wasn't really scared of that, but just the idea of it being recorded and do you say the right thing and how do you, you know, just navigate that and talking to people – and just the whole dynamic, I think, was a little bit, like, intimidating initially. But then afterwards, it just became, like, second nature, and I love doing it. It's something that's really cool and just a different form of media, and it's um, a form of media that can reach people. And especially now with COVID, I think a lot of people are open to different kinds of media that they can listen to and, and gain knowledge from. So it's it's been, like, super interesting and fun, actually, since I've been doing it. Yeah, I find that for me, the biggest thing I had to get used to was hearing my own voice. You know, they always say that most people hate I the hate sound. my voice. I Your hate own voice. my voice. Like I literally, when I hear my voice on the podcast, I'm like, skip over that part because I'm just like, I don't want to hear that. So. <laughs> I hate my voice. And, and and still, after all these months, I still hate it. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I, I just I just overlook my voice. I'm always like, well, at least I'm getting a good message out there. So I just like try to skip over, like not wanting to hear my own voice. It's, it's weird, though. I think most people kind of feel like that, like, oh, my gosh, that's how I sound. Because I'm like, that doesn't seem like how I sound. It seems like I sound different than that. So it's like a weird thing when you're in your head, like, that's how I sound. That sounds different from what I thought, right? Yeah, I know. That's that's my problem. It's like, oh, wow, that's what I sound like. Okay. <laughs> but your voice sounds beautiful, so I don't know why you're saying that. <laughs> like, and yours does too. It's yes, just, to yes, us, it just sounds like, what? Yeah, why, do you, why do you sound like that? Yeah, it's funny. But yeah, I mean, the message is, is pure. The message is good. The, the idea of amplifying, I love what you're doing, amplifying Black women and, and giving women a forum for them to be able to get their message out there and be heard. I think I saw something on maybe on LinkedIn, I think yesterday or earlier today, and someone was like, black women are pretty much the most marginalized and, and 
you know, that's something, a quote that I've seen floating around on social media, just the, the burden of being a black woman in this country is really at times very difficult to, to navigate. So it's great to have this forum where women are able to speak their truth. I love that idea. Well, thank you. Yes. The struggle is real girl for black women. It really is. It is real. So as we prepare to wrap this up again, it it amazes me sometimes when I have guests like you and it's like, I could talk to you forever (laughs) and I'm looking up and it's like been an hour. (laughs) I know. Like I never would have thought I happened to look up at the time and I'm going, get out of here. We've been here an hour. And I remember when we started, I was like, Oh, be 45 minutes or so. Yeah, (laughs) But that's a good thing. It does fly by, but if if you could leave people with one thing that you would want them to get out of uh, hearing your story, reading the posts that you're putting out there, what do you hope people gain from it? I think my biggest, and I tell my students this, and my biggest thing that I always try to think about is like, what is your power? Like, how can you affect change? What can you do that's meaningful? So my biggest takeaway, I think, from this whole experience is that, you know, we all have powers. We all have gifts that we can use. We all have a truth that we can speak. And it, it, can, it doesn't have to be in a CNN article. It can be in any form or fashion that we feel comfortable with. As long as we're speaking our truth and as long as we're being authentic and as long as we're doing something meaningful, especially in our communities, that a lot of times we just don't have those avenues to be able to be as effective or as, as, as impactful as we want to be, but that doesn't have to be on a national level. It could be in a classroom. It could be with your children. It could be in any shape or form or fashion that we choose. And as long as we're doing something positive and as long as we're, we're doing something beneficial that can bring, I think, additional meaning, then that's really the, the most important thing. I think I always think in terms of a legacy and making sure that we make this earth a more positive environment than we found it. So that's what I would encourage people to maybe take from this is just to use your power and to be able to leave a a lasting legacy uh, for our children to, to have a better world to live in. That's always what I hope for. Well, I think that's a great way to end. I just want to thank you for your time today. I really do appreciate it again for, um, you know, just taking this time. And so that's all the time we have for today. If you have any questions for me, you can hit me up at kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. Again, that is kdt at inmyshoestoday.com. And until we have a chance to speak again, be blessed.